0: We are in uh, a key text of the Bible, one that has caused no uh, shortage of heartburn among God's people and among pastors and theologians. And uh, we're going to be in James chapter 2 and uh, starting in verse 14. And here's what James writes. I'm just going to dive right in. He says, uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James starts out and he starts out with my brothers, followed by a rhetorical question. Uh, When he comes with my brothers and either a rhetorical question or a command, um, it's a start of a new unit of thought. So here we are. And he's asked, actually, he asks two questions here, doesn't he? What's the first one? He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have faith? works? Well, you know, a rhetorical question is one that it implies, you know, the answer, right? Really, it's more of a statement than it is a question. And uh, James's statement here, he's not looking for an answer because the answer is obvious. It's no good. It's no good. Faith, uh, if somebody says he has faith, but has no works, it's no good, James says. Then he asks a second question. He goes, can, can that faith save him? Your translation, if you've got an older translation like King James, it might say, can faith save him? But there's actually an article in there. It's referring to what he just talked about. Can that faith save him? What's the answer James is looking for? No. No. Now, um, that causes some uh, headaches for us, doesn't it? Especially, we'll get here a little further. We look at what Paul writes, and Paul says, no, you're, only, you're not saved by works. It's only by faith. And James says, hey, if, if, if your faith, if it doesn't have works, can it save you? And he's, he says, no. Boy, that's... In other words, is, can you really have faith, maybe that should be in quotation marks, without evidence of it? Have you ever noticed that there are a lot of people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ? who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet these same people barely attend church. Uh, They don't come or participate. When they do come, they don't participate in anything. Uh, They don't give anything to support the ministry. Uh, They don't take up any responsibilities in ministry. They show no interest in caring for the needy. They seem to live and look very much like unbelievers, and they talk less like them, and they hold the same values as them, can you really have faith with no evidence? Some people will blame this. Oh, that's their church. See, they, they got saved, but they grew up in this church, and nobody discipled them. And so, okay. Some people say, no, they're just a carnal Christian. Like, they, they believe in Jesus, but there's, 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 he's never become Lord of their life. Okay, do you know what James says? James says that the the problem with people like this where they claim to have faith but there's no evidence is very simple. Here's here's what it is. Here's what he says. He says, the problem with people who call themselves Christians and claim to have faith but give no evidence of faith is that they do not possess true faith. So before we get going this morning, I jumped in kind of heavy, didn't I? Do you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ? If you do, then what evidence is there of that claim in your life? You know, I, I said it here, and I used to say it to students all the time. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Just like going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a chalupa. <laughs> you'll look like a chalupa. you eat enough chalupas. You'll smell like a chalupa. doesn't make you a chalupa. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. You can spend your lifetime in church and spend eternity in hell if you're not in Christ. Is there evidence of your faith? I'm just going to be really blunt with you right away out of the gate this morning and get your attention. Because the reality is that in every church, ours included, I believe, there are people who claim to be Christians, who've come to church their whole life, but there is little, if any, evidence of faith in their life. Is that you? Is that you? Have you been playing a game? If you've been playing a game, your time is running out. Maybe not this week, maybe not this year, but it's, it's run, there's a date circled in red on your calendar. You think you're a follower of Jesus. You've prayed the prayer, but nothing has ever changed in your life. There's a mental ascent, but no heart of repentance. But I've spent my whole life in church, Josh. I've been here the whole time I was here, the first Sunday. I, I don't care. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you do, there should be evidence in your life of it. Is there? This is incredibly serious. And you might think, oh, I can put this off another week. I'm just going to check out today. I'm looking forward to hot dogs and hamburgers. I'm too. But before we get there, um, don't put this off. See, James, the same guy who writes this, he later will write, uh, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. This might be your last chance to ever hear this and be challenged in this way. Do you know that? It might be the last chance. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, today might be your last chance. Don't, Don't roll the dice on this. James says, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Let me pray. Father, um, Lord, it's a heavy text this morning. In some ways, it seems really simple and straightforward. But in others, uh, when we really examine our lives and our heart with it, the truth is it can be frightening. Because we know our sinfulness. We know our weaknesses. We know where we're messed up. And, Lord, uh, it can be frightening, too, because it can be very easy to simply say with our mouth we believe, but never believe in our hearts and never have it affect our lives. Lord, I pray for those today who hear my voice today or who hear it later that um, if that's them, Holy Spirit, would you convict them and turn them to repentance? If there is no evidence of faith in their life, would, would you kindly come alongside them and draw them to Jesus? For the rest of us, uh, would you challenge us to uh, give greater evidence of our faith? Holy Spirit, I I pray uh, and thank you that you use me. I pray against the enemy as servants, their works and effects, who would have us hear this message and say, "Ah, there's nothing to worry about. There's a lot to worry about and a lot of reasons to trust you. Draw us to you this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What good is it, my brothers, James writes, if if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Last week we saw uh, James make another point about faith. He said, uh, true faith should not show repentance. It should show repentance. Boy, that was a (laughs) slip of the tongue, wasn't it? True faith should not show favoritism should not show favoritism. Well, he does the same thing, and he, then he illustrates it in a m- multiple ways. Today, he does the same thing. He makes a point about faith, that it needs to be shown by good works, and then he illustrates it in multiple ways. Um, and and he, he discusses the relationship between true saving faith and your works, your deeds in your life. But before we dive into this, this text, we need to, to start with a little bit of another warning in that, uh, We need to pay close attention to what James actually says and what he does not say, that we don't mistake it for what he does not say. The focus here isn't debating whether or not faith is the basis of salvation. James isn't doing that. The focus here is, is your faith visible? Can people see it in your life? Uh, Does it manifest itself in a tangible way? And if it doesn't, then you need to examine your life and say, okay, do I really have true faith or do I have what James calls dead faith? Which is it? See, the main point today from James is that faith that isn't shown isn't really known. If your faith isn't shown in your life, you probably don't really know Jesus. Warren Wearsby, I thought, said it this way. I thought it was pretty good. No man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. (laughs) Whereas my pastor, when I was in college, said it, if your faith hasn't changed you, it probably hasn't saved you. Has your faith changed you? Faith that isn't shown isn't really known. It has to be shown in your life. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of this old commercial. Do you remember this? It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Why is the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger. We must have a single. single. And Wendy's single has more beef than a whopper. I was like five or or six years old when that was on TV. And uh, a lady comes on, where's the the beef? beef? Where's the beef? Home of the big bun. You want something better. You know know what James says to you today? He says, where's the fruit? (laughs) Home of the big Bible, where's the fruit? Huh? Where is it? Is there fruit in your life? Where's the beef, man? Come on. You got a faith that isn't shown, isn't known. So it's helpful for us to get an understanding, too, of biblical faith. Well, here's what faith is. We use this definition a lot. Faith is believing God's word and then acting upon it, no matter how I feel. (laughs) Because sometimes, if we're honest, we don't feel like it. Because God promises a good result. And I've kind of added this on the end, and he keeps all of his promises. See, uh, James talked about that last week, that last part. He said in verse 1, or a couple weeks ago, 125, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That person will. Jesus says this in Matthew seven twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, James isn't contradicting Jesus even. He's saying that the one who enters heaven is the one who does my Father's will. The one who lives it out. (laughs) There's no such thing as faith with no evidence. It results in life change. Faith, let me say it again, faith that isn't shown isn't really known. So that's James' main point, right? Well, now he's going to illustrate it for us in a handful of ways. He's actually uh, three or four ways, depending on how you want to count them. He illustrates it. And the first illustration is a parable. And he tells this parable about caring for other people within the church. He's, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are being persecuted and uh, who have scattered from Jerusalem. And uh, he's writing to them and he encourages them uh, to care for one another. Uh, See, he says, if a brother or a sister, verse 15, that's how I know it's about people in the church, this passage right here is, right? This parable. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, uh, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What what good is that? Now, that doesn't mean James' illustration here has to do with people in the church. That doesn't mean we don't care for people outside of the church, right? But that means if, if you're not doing it in the church, well, there's pro- it's probably never going to happen outside of the church. Um, poorly clothed, lacking, they, they're poor, they need food. We're not told why they're poor, just that they're poor. And he says, what good is it if all you do is bless them, pray for them, smile at them, give them good advice, pat them on the back, send them out the door and do nothing for them? What good is that? Another rhetorical question, right? What's the answer? None. It's no good. It's no good. It's worthless. The idea is very clear that we ought to do what God's word commands, that if we really have faith, it's going to show it in our lives, especially within the church, especially within your 110 group, especially among one another. He says, in the same way, so also, verse 17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Let me ask you what what's something do when it's dead? Not hard. Nothing. Nothing. It does nothing. It does nothing. And and by the way he doesn't say it's dormant, you know? Like a seed that you plant and then it comes to life. No, no, no. It's it's dead. There is no life, no hope for life there. Dead. Faith without works if it's by itself, faith that isn't shown isn't really known. There's no life. To have faith and have no evidence of it doesn't, it doesn't correlate with what the Bible teaches about our faith, does it? Ephesians two and five, we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, uh, we were dead, but, but Christ made us alive. If you're alive, there's going to be evidence of it. If, if your faith is dead, um, there's no evidence. You've been made alive. Colossians, Paul says it too. You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. If you're alive, there's going to be evidence of life, right? Somebody passes out. What do the paramedics do when they show up? What's the first thing they do? They look for what? Signs of, what's the word? Okay, your, your life. You've been made alive. What are the signs of life in your life? What are the works? What are the good deeds? But James isn't done making his point. There's this first parable, and he makes it very, very simple that faith apart from works without works is dead. Dead. Then he goes on to another illustration, and in the second illustration, he he sets up a fake argument with somebody. Um, In literature, this would be called the interlocutor. Fancy word I learned this week. Thought I'd share it with you the interlocutor. And it's the guy that he's arguing against. And uh, here's, here's what he says. He says, but someone will say, uh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, the, the point of that's pretty clear, right? I'm going to show you my faith by my works. It's going to be visible. But the dialogue itself is a little bit confusing when you start to really think about it and unpack it. Well. Okay, who's James arguing against? Why did he say it that way? Well, do you remember a couple weeks ago, I was talking to you about the Greek text and how in the original Koine Greek, there was no punctuation. uh, There were no quotation marks. There were no capital letters, things like that. No paragraphs even. You just, you knew where you were based on the ways words were repeated. And it's very clear how that divides out. But that's why in some translations, paragraphs start in different places and things like that because it's an interpretive decision uh, interpreting that language. Well, there's no quotation marks, so so to put these quotation marks in here is is a decision an interpreter made when he interpreted it, and he, he lays it out like this. The debate the debate opponent goes, uh, you have faith and I have works, and James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That seems a little strange to me. I think, uh, and again, I don't know, I'm not going to criticize those guys because they're a lot smarter than me. But as I look at it, and, and looked at it this week, and, and read some other opinions on it, I think Another possible translation, is, doesn't change the meaning at all, but it's more helpful in understanding it, It would be the debate opponent goes, uh, James is like, do you have faith? Remember, there's no, uh, there's no punctuation anything like that. So it could be taken in the form of a question. Do you have faith? And then James's reply was, well, I also have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I think this is really consistent with the text and helpful to understand it, to interpret it this way. But again, James's point is that faith that isn't shown isn't what? Known. It's not known. Faith that isn't shown isn't known. So James then is like, okay, well, let me show you. Let me show you. By the way, before we go on, again, let me ask you. What about you? Can you look back on your life? And can you look at, at periods of life and events in your life? And can you see growth over time? Not perfection. James isn't talking perfection here, okay? But but can you see growth? Are you the same person you were ten years ago when you claimed Jesus or five years ago or whatever that is? If you're the same, then did you did you really trust him? If you see growth, how much? James says, you know, some, you, you may say, uh, I have faith, but I, or do you have faith? But I say, I also have deeds. So show me your faith by deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. He's like, let me show you. And then he goes like that. He goes on. He says in verse 19, see, you believe that God is one and you do well. You ever wonder if there's sarcasm in the Bible? I think this is one of them. There is sarcasm in the Bible. And I think this is in situation of it. James is like, oh, you believe God's one? Good for you. You know, that's like the, the kids in Sunday school. Every answer is Jesus. Oh, good job. You know, I mean, you wouldn't say that to a kid, but like, he's just—it's kind of sarcastic. Oh, good for you. Yeah. You, guess what? Let me tell you something. Even the demons believe God is one, and they shudder. You believe He's one? Well, good. Good work. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And guess what? In other words, um, are they saved? <laughs> but they have. But they believe. Mental assent isn't the same thing as repentance and true faith. See, uh, even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you know uh, James's older brother, Jesus? Did you know that? If you maybe you haven't been here, you didn't realize James is the younger brother of Jesus, the half brother. Uh, There's an an encounter that Mark records in Mark chapter five of Jesus, who was God and is God, encountering a, a, a demon. Can you imagine that? A small town on the edge of the lake. Could be like Syracuse, right? I mean, the, the lake of, of Gennesaret, Lake Galilee isn't, it's bigger than Wawasee, but not a ton bigger. This town on the edge of the lake, and uh, there's this guy there who's possessed by demons, and he's running around naked, living in the cemetery, and everybody's scared of him, and they tried to bind him, but he, he got loose. Would you be afraid? Would you shudder at that man? I would. I'd go near that dude. But look what happens. Uh, um, Verse 6, I think this will be on the screen. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Everybody else is scared of this dude, but Jesus just shows up, takes a step out of the boat, and the guy everyone else is afraid of. What's he do? He believes God is one, and he, what does James say? He shudders. Look, he ran and he fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I assure you by God, do not torment me. We find out as if you keep reading, the man is possessed by many demons. But the point is clear. Um, Even the demons believe and know who God is and they shudder. But uh, don't just believe. Where are your works? How do you live it out? Do the demons believe in Jesus' deity? Yes. Do, do the demons believe you as the son of God? Yes. Did that save them? No. No. Friends, your mental ascent to Jesus' doesn't save you any more than it saved the demons. So then he goes on and he asks another question. Goes, so do you want to be shown then? I made a couple points already, but do you, do you want me to show you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is like, you, you want another example? You want me to show you more? How about let's, 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 go, in, let's go to the Bible and I'll show you. Because some of you are thinking like, uh, I don't know. That's a good point. But, but where, is it, where is it in the Word? Which is a really good thing to ask. Where is it in the Bible? So what does James do? He takes us to Scripture. And in his third illustration, or you could even say third and fourth, he, he shows us an example from the Bible, from the Old Testament, in Abraham and then in Rahab. Look at verse 21. He says, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, now, before we go further, uh, we just need to get a definition on the table theologically so you understand what, what he's saying here. Um, justified. What's, what does that word mean? Justification. It's a legal term. It's where justice has been served. It's where things have been made right, right? Somebody commits a crime. You're like, we want justice. What do we really want? We want it made Right, right? Well, theologically, justification is the process by which things are made right between us and God. Because we're like a criminal to him. We're his enemy. We've sinned against him. And we're made righteous through justification. We're made, things are made right between us and God. A a helpful way to remember what justification means is uh, that now, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. I've been made righteous. I've been made alive, the text we read earlier, right? That, that's how you think. It, my, it's just as if I'd, in God's sight, it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. Well, um, James says here, uh, Abraham, our father, was justified by work. So the question that we have to ask is, uh, I want just. do you want justification before God? I do. I do. I want to be made righteous in his sight. The question is, how do I attain that justification? How do I receive it? And there's kind of two options on the table. One would say you receive that by faith, faith alone through grace alone through Jesus, in Jesus Christ, right? Grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. Or you receive it by uh, your own good works. Which one is it according to the gospel? Well, according to religion, it's you, you achieve it through your good works. According to the gospel, the truth is that you attain it through faith. And, and it says this all over the Bible, that justification is attained through faith. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Would you agree? Pretty clear? How about Romans 3.20? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He goes on later in verse chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. And almost all of chapter 4 of Romans discusses this, Paul does. And then uh, in Titus, again, uh, writing to Titus, He, Jesus, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our works are we justified and saved, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty clear statement. Um, we're not justified by our good works, but by our faith in Jesus' good works. Is that clear? Yes or no? Is that clear? Okay, so now how does that line up with what James just said in chapter 2, verse 21? He says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? He's asking a rhetorical question, and the the answer seems to be an implied yes. Wasn't, Wasn't he justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What is he talking about? We just saw, it's so clear through the Bible, you're justified not by works, but by faith. What is James saying? Well... We know that God cannot deny himself, right? He's true to himself all the time. So if, if other places in scripture are abundantly clear that we're saved by faith alone, right? By grace alone through faith alone, that's how we receive our justification. Um, and this is the place, all of a sudden we come to it and it says by works. Uh, are, do those things contradict each other? No, that means we're not understanding maybe what James is saying exactly. And so we need to dive in a little further and see what is he talking about? What does he mean when he says Abraham was justified by his works? Well, first, let's look at what works James is talking about. Uh, The the passage he references here, he says, is Abraham, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, this takes place, you might jot this down, Genesis chapter 22. And um, Genesis chapter 22, let me just read some of it to you. Does that sound good? Let me read this story to you that James is referencing. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham responded, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This would be the same place uh, where eventually the temple would be built in Jerusalem, by the way. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, You stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, we don't know how old Isaac is here, but you'll notice here in a second, he's the one who's going to carry the wood. Much, by the way, just like Jesus carried the wood of his cross, and uh, so he's at least old enough to do that. So he's probably at least middle school age, would have known what's going on. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, his son, and he took, it in, his, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He knew what was going on, didn't he? Abraham said, well, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. I believe most of the time when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, usually it's a reference to Jesus. Uh, called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I know that you fear God. Why? Seeing, seeing, seeing Abraham's works. He knew that he feared him. James could have chosen, by the way, another a number of other examples of, uh, of Abraham's obedience to God's command. And the, the, but he picks one that comes in chapter 22, which is significant because it comes after something else that was said about Abraham. So you look at verse 22. He says, you see? In other words, um, James is like, do you see it? Do you see it? <laughs> you see? Um, faith That faith was active. Along with his works. Do you see it? Remember he said right before this, let me show you. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? And then he says, well, what about Abraham? Do you see? Do you see? His his faith was active with his works. It was active. He was believing God's word and acting upon it. His faith was um, completed James writes, by his works. Your translation might say made perfect, but the idea is it was completed. And he goes on, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in verse 23. Well, in verse 23, Abraham is actually quoting um, another passage in Genesis that happened earlier than the account of him and Isaac. It happened in seven chapters earlier, decades earlier, in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says, uh, And he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then it says, verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if we had time to go in, this is an incredible passage because Abraham is an incredibly old man at this point, pushing 100 years old. And God's telling him, you're going to have children and it's going to be a big family. Oh, <laughs> Sure. But he, what did he do? He believed him, didn't he? And then God counted it to him as righteousness. Do you know what that means? Counted is like this financial term, like it was credited to him. Like direct deposit in his account, Righteousness. Well, Paul quoted this same verse in Romans chapter four, and uh, he goes through and and uses the same thing to show that um, Abraham received uh, righteousness simply through faith, simply through believing, not because of doing good deeds, but by believing he received it. But it's so key that James actually references then an act of of his deeds that happens after this point because it it he, James what did he say it fulfilled. This scripture, don't you see that by this, uh, this scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he he proved it to be true. (laughs) He proved it to be true. He didn't just believe, but he lived it out. It was proven true in his life. Do you see, James says, do you want to be shown? Listen, I'm showing you. And then he says in verse 24, don't you see? You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see it? (laughs) He's not saying that that faith doesn't play a part. He's just saying if it's real faith, there's going to be works with it. Like if you hand me a sandwich and you tell me it's peanut butter and jelly, but there's ham and Swiss, it's not peanut butter and jelly, is it? I can open it up and see it. If you really have faith, you can see it. If I give you a tree and I tell you this is an apple tree and you plant it in your yard and you wait for it to bear fruit, but all of a sudden the fruit are cherries. And I said, oh, it's an apple tree. That's what I gave you. I believe it's an apple tree. Does that matter? No, what's the fruit? Listen, if you simply believe and you say you have faith, but it's never shown, I'm telling you, it's not really known. Do you really have saving faith? You see? A person is justified by by works, not just by faith. Their, Their faith is justified. They're proven true by works. And notice this also, James in verse 23 says that Abraham was called a friend of God. Well, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I commanded you to do. You're my friends if you live it out. That's how I know Well, uh, next, uh, James goes on with this. You could call it the third illustration or call it a fourth. He goes to another Old Testament example, a woman by the name of Rahab. He says in verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Whoa, James. Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Let's keep reading. And he says, when... She received the messengers and sent them out by another way. James turns to another Old Testament passage to prove his point. And just like he used two extremes last Sunday with the the gold-fingered man and the really poor man, right? Here he uses two big extremes to make his point, Abraham and Rahab. Listen, I don't know if you could find two more opposite people in the Old Testament. Abraham was a patriarch, he's godly, he's incredibly, incredibly rich, he's a Jewish man, he's righteous, he's a friend of God. Rahab on the other hand was ungodly, she was a prostitute, which likely means that she wasn't rich. She was a Gentile woman, she was unrighteous clearly, and she was a part of the people not of the Jewish people but of the enemies of God that God was coming to destroy. You couldn't find two different people. But you know what they have in common? Saving faith. Saving faith that's demonstrated by works. Uh, James is referring to a story in Joshua 2 and 6 here. And uh, long story short, Joshua and the Israelites are getting ready to enter the promised land. And Josh sends two spies in to check out this town called Jericho. Right? And they're not very good spies, if you read the text, because they're caught like on the first day. And the king finds out that they're in town. And uh, he finds out they're staying with Rahab. At her house. And so he sends people there to look for them. And Rahab's like, I don't, I don't know where they are. They, they already left. They already left. But if you go, you chase them, you can find them. The truth is they hadn't left. She had hid them. And she hid them. And then she goes to them after the king had come and sent people after him. And she goes to them and she said, uh, I, listen, they were looking for you. I sent them out chasing after you. They think you fled. But I did this because here's the deal. We know who your God is. We heard about everything he did uh, 40 years ago when people crossed the Red Sea and how he killed all of Pharaoh's army. Uh, We've we've heard and seen how powerful he is. and, And I believe that. And I'm not messing with that. And so she hides them, and then she says, now listen, here's what you need to do. If you're going to escape, I'm going to let, she lets them down by a rope over the wall. Her house was in the wall, and she sends them the opposite direction into the hills from where uh, the army had gone looking for him. She says, stay in the hills for three days, then go back. You'll be safe. But when you guys come, uh, save my family. And they promised to do that, and they do. And at Rahab, eventually, because she demonstrated her belief in God through her actions, not just, not just mental assent, but, but living it out. Uh, remember our definition of faith? It's believing God's word and acting upon it. Both Rahab and Abraham did that. Uh, no matter how I feel, it, uh, Rahab was probably scared because God promises a good result when I do. And listen, he gave her a great result, didn't he? Um, she lived. She becomes part of God's people, and she actually shows up in Matthew as being the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. Did you know that? James is writing about his great-grandma here, Rahab. Abraham and Rahab, they lived it out. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those. were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Well, then finally, James has given us some illustrations and he gives a closing summary in verse 26. He says, for uh, as as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I remember... uh, after my dad had passed away, this was one of the first verses I thought of, seeing him there. Like the body apart from the spirit's dead, so faith without works is dead. I don't know why, it just came to mind then and I just still picture it now. Because faith that isn't shown isn't really known. If there's no signs of life, it's dead. So what do you do? with this message. Well, there's, there's, the Bible teaches there's two groups of people, those who have truly trusted Jesus and those who never have. If you never have, if uh, maybe you're totally new and you've you've just, you've never even really understood the gospel or heard it before today that you're saved by faith, by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ, by his good works, and it results in good works and it changed life in you, you need to just simply repent, which means to turn. To turn in repentance to Jesus Christ. Some of you, you've claimed faith for a lifetime, but there's no evidence of good deeds in your life. Do you know what the first good deed of faith is? The first taking action on your faith is called repentance. It's turning to Jesus Christ in saving faith. And you need to repent. Second, if um, You know Jesus and you have repented and there is fruit, there is evidence of faith in your life. Um, Then let me just ask you, um, how much fruit is there? How much evidence? Should there be more by this point in time? Well, repent, live that out. And then let me ask you then, if there should be more, and for all of us, the resounding answer is yes, (laughs) there should. Where are you stepping out in faith? Where are you stepping out in faith? I mean, if you were, uh, if you were Abraham, right? And uh, Tim wrote this, I believe, in one of the questions for this week. If you were Abraham, and and the, uh, God said, um, "Hey, take your son, sacrifice him, and it's going to turn out good," and you go, and you think in your head, "Yeah, I bet he'd probably provide something else, and he'd probably be okay." But I'm not going to do that because that's risky. <laughs> Would you be like Abraham or would you actually put your faith in action and live it out? Where are you stepping out in faith? Uh, Where are you letting yourself be stretched? Where are you stepping out on the ledge and and trusting God to provide the words you need to speak to that person you work alongside? Where are you stepping out in faith and trusting God to provide the dollars you need to make this happen? What what, what is it? Where, Where do you need to step out in faith? And demonstrate your faith and say, you know what? I'm all in. I'm not just testing the water anymore. I'm in. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and for your grace to us through him. And uh, Lord, the clear writing of James. Father, it can be a, be a harsh thing to hear and to examine our lives and to think, um, boy, I, I've claimed faith, but I don't see any evidence of it. Well, that's your grace showing us that. And then it's your grace uh, to allow us to still repent. I pray for those today, Lord, who who never have repented and trusted you that today might be the day that they would. Um, I pray for those of us who have that you'd give us courage, Lord, not to sit on the sidelines and just ho-hum for the rest of our life until Jesus comes back, but to take risks, to trust you, to step out in faith, to see your kingdom grow, to quit sitting on our hands. Lord, take your word and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.